You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Happy Palm Sunday. This is the week, right? This is the week. Um, If you haven't realized it before, I'm going to tell you now, uh, one-third of each of the four Gospels spends uh, this week is the week that it focuses on. In other words, two-thirds of the Gospel for 30-plus years of Jesus' life, one-third of each of the Gospels for just this one week of his life. It says something right there about the importance of this week and all the events that we are experiencing. So today is Palm Sunday as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Uh, This Friday, we are celebrating a Good Friday service at 6.30 to focus on, in fearful faith, that awesome day and what God did there and then. And then Easter Sunday, the resurrection, basically a confirmation, an authentication, a validation of everything that Jesus did. And um, amazing. It's an amazing week. It changes world history. In fact, our calendars flip because of this one person and this one event. So welcome. It's good to have you here. Now, today we are finishing uh, the series of Fearful Faith in terms of the Ten Commandments. And I hope through this series what you have found is what I would like to think is a deeper logic rather than a surface reading of each of the commandments we have gone through. And that... As I stated last week, uh, these 10 commandments, these 10 words from God that are both recorded in uh, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 5 are the most important, historically um, uh, greatest ethical directives ever written in the history of the world, partly because they are so succinct. They're not that long. And because they are so, um, so universal, we all understand them. Today, uh, the last commandment on coveting, a word we don't use too often, um, you might think, isn't, you know, it's kind of, well, at least in my Sunday school experience, you know, when I was a kid, I always thought the first commandment, of course, is the most important, you shall have no other gods before me, right? And they kind of, in my understanding, kind of went down in priority till kind of a cleanup role for coveting. Let's just throw that one in to make it 10 instead of nine or whatever, and here we go. And what is coveting? That is the question. And um, now I realize this commandment, in a sense, goes a lot deeper than we ever really thought. It really touches on the mystery, the paradox, the, <laughs> the, the, the um, what do you call, just the, uh, co- the living contradiction we human beings are. Yeah, just we're a living, that, because it gets to the heart of our desires and motives. And it expresses in one of the most poignant ways uh, the Christian teaching on human nature and what the law of God actually does. And so we're going to read the commandment first. Here it is in uh, its Deuteronomy version. Now, deuteronomos means second giving of the law. It's a long sermon, by the way. If you think mine are long, Moses preached a long time on this sermon. Okay, Deuteronomy, the whole book, one sermon. 
And, um, but anyways, it's the second reading of the law, and this is what it says in Deuteronomy. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So we're going to meditate on this commandment today, and we'll explore these three points with it. First of all, what we need. That is, what does this commandment expose in us that we are lacking, and what do we really need? Okay? And then secondly, why we need it. That is, what happens if we don't get what we actually need? <laughs> what happens in our lives? And then finally, how do you get it? Well, what means do we actually are able to receive what this commandment really needs? So, what we need. Now, when you think about coveting, you know, it starts with the spouse and then it turns to property uh, values and things, you know, um, ox, donkeys, you think, well, okay. Um, and we could easily translate it to cars and houses and all that stuff today. But probably what most people think about coveting, if they even know what the word means, is be satisfied with what you have. That's the basics of this commandment. Um, but is that really what this commandment's about? Just be satisfied. And by the way, who is? I mean, who's satisfied? That's why advertising works. We're not. They're always offering more, 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 better, better, more new, improved, right? But um, we hardly ever use the word covet today. And most people probably don't know what it means. Now, we're going to kind of go back and do a little word study here, like I teach some of my students to do. Let's look at it in Greek and in Hebrew. So the Bible was first, uh, uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy were written first in Hebrew. And the word is chamad, and it means to desire or take pleasure in. And then the Greek word, when the Septuagint was written, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, it uses this word epithumia, which epi is over, and thumia is desire. And it really means kind of desire in overdrive or desire superseding other desires. And what we find out is that coveting is a life-dominating, intense craving or desire that goes beyond wanting other things. It's wanting this so much so I spend all my time focused on this. And therefore, these other things fall down the line. Now, St. Paul actually talks about coveting of all the commandments. I've always been puzzled by that. In Romans chapter 7, he talks about this commandment, not murder, not even the first commandment, not the second, third, none of them, just this last commandment on coveting. And he writes in Romans 7 this, what then shall we say? that the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produces in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. 
So he says in this that the purpose of the law was to actually expose our sin, our covetousness, or anything else. That our failings, this commandment is like a big mirror, and we get to look not on the outside behaviors, not on our actions or our words that we speak out, but we get to look inwardly at our motivations and our passions and our desires. And when Paul looked at this commandment of all ten of them, when he looked at this commandment, he realized something much deeper than looking at the surface of, well, I haven't killed anyone, and I haven't committed adultery, and I didn't steal anything, and I do worship God. He saw instead, oh, but my motives, my passions, my desires. He then knew he was as good as dead, he says, because his desires were all out of whack. They were all over the place. You know, people think that the word sin means what? Harming someone, ooh, or maybe a mistake. Don't you like it when uh, politicians or maybe other celebrities, when they did something and they apologize, what they really say, mistakes were made. Well, by whom? You know, they don't even tell you by whom. And then it's just a mistake because that's as deep as we want to go with understanding sin. But here, Paul realizes sin is much more. It goes to the core of our will and our emotions and desires. It's not just about what I do on the outside because I can change my activities. I can even create a new habit. Over time, I can do new things. It's no problem. Right? I can modify my actions. I can go through motions and alter even my speech so I don't say those words anymore. And if you focus long enough, and if you do it incremental enough, you have the willpower to change different parts of your life. But the one thing that I struggle with, and I think you do too, and we all do, this is human nature, are my desires. What I want, what I'm passionate about, what I love, what I want more of. And Paul knew that that's what this, this commandment is about. And that nailed him. In totality, the law, he says, it killed me. I'm, I'm dead in it. I can't do it. Now, you might be th thinking to yourself, wait a minute, Pastor John, you're, um, I'm not supposed to want anything? No. Now here, the word epithumia that I brought up for helps us understand what coveting is and how it works in our lives. The word epithumia, it's the Greek word that we had before, and it basically means this desire gets out of line with this desire. In other words, Augustine is the one who realized this. He is the one who said we're not rational creatures. St. Augustine, what? in 400s, understood human nature. We are desiring creatures. It's what we desire, what we love, that motivates us and moves us, etc. Human beings are desiring creatures. And what we desire is what we end up worshiping. And we were made to actually adore the one true and living God above all else. And like Augustine said, we are restless in our souls, in our hearts, until we find our rest in him, until we worship him rightly. 
But the problem is we worship so many other things because we desire so much out of whack and God does not take first place in our life. All these other desires take over and usurp his place. So it's wanting other things more than what you should rightly want. For instance, I love coffee, right? And I love my wife, and I love God. Not in that order, <laughs> but I'll tell you, I better have my coffee before I want to love my wife in the morning because, man, I need that kick. But the point is, um, if I would love coffee more than I loved my wife, you would all think that's pretty crazy and out of whack. And it is a weird, super silly illustration of this. But that's what sin is. Sin is not wanting bad things. Sin is wanting something good taking the place of a greater good. Sin is wanting good things as ultimate things in your life. And we see that all around us. That's why Paul in Colossians chapter 3 puts the idea of covetousness in this Bible passage alongside of idolatry. Colossians 3 verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, and you go like, wow, you know, that other list, that sounds like all sorts of bad stuff, but then covetousness, and that's the one he says is idolatry, it's because you worship what you desire. And I worship me. I desire good things for me. And so often they get out of whack. What I desire, I want, I focus on, and that is the biggest problem. Something takes the place of God making a good thing an ultimate thing. It's the sin that happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. The desire for the knowledge of good and evil in itself is not bad, but wanting it more than God, that's the problem. When our hearts are actually in tune with the reality that God has made, then we will invest most of our time into the things that really matter and that are truly worth loving and desiring, and other things in a prioritized list, God being the ultimate and other things under it. And then I find my identity in God, I find my purpose in God, I find my direction in God, I find my security in God, and I'm grounded in Him. So what do we need? That was the question we asked at the beginning of this point. We need our desires reordered, put in the right order. And I think each one of us realizes, my desires are all out of whack. It's like a crazy little monkey inside that just wants this, and then wants that, and then wants this, and then wants that, and goes this way and that way. And that's what we need, a reordering of our desires and our loves. Now, why is this so important? You know, this co co uh, covenant commandment, it's kind of in the cleanup position on the Ten Commandments, I guess you could say, but it's not just about coveting. Do you, you realize what's going on with this? Is that Paul, when he talks about it, when God talks about it, coveting actually covers all the other commandments. It's basically saying that if you don't have the desires out of order, then you won't be stealing anything. If your desires are aligned properly, you're not going to kill anybody. 
If your desires are correct, adultery's off the table. You wouldn't be breaking any other commandment if your desires were aligned the way God intended them to be. Now, James in the New Testament says much the same. He says in James chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It is, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So James and Augustine are saying basically the same thing. Sin is not breaking a rule. The real issue is your desires, that your loves are out of alignment with the way God intended them. And I wouldn't be breaking any of these others if my heart was in the right place. And that the heart of sin is not doing a bad thing, but it's taking good things and making them ultimate things. Now, we're going to get to a better example than coffee, <laughs> how things can be out of line. Because in our society, at least for the last, I don't know, 50, 100 years in American society, I believe um, it's easy for us to fall into the temptation of putting our career first in our lives. Have you noticed that? We say, in our culture, that's where your identity is. In our culture, that's what makes you you. That's what makes you important. That's what gives you status. That's what gives you significance. In fact, when you introduce yourself to someone else and say, hi, I'm John, I'm A, what do you say? It's your job, usually. It's usually your job, right? You don't say, I'm a child of God. That's not the first, well, it, that might sound a little weird, right? Ooh, who is this? Is that a cult? Um, but, and you don't, but you don't usually say, oh, I'm a member of this family and I belong to, you know. You say your job. It's what you do that defines you in our society and your performance. And true, career's a good thing. It's not the ultimate thing. And if you want to get ahead, you might do it. And for a while, you might put your career and your work ahead of your family and your hobbies and your own health, and it'll work for a while. But in the long run, not so much. And who, like we've heard it said before, who on their deathbed ever says, gee, I wish I spent more time in the office? Who on their deathbed has not said, though, you know, I'm glad I had the time I did with my family and loved ones and the people I loved, but I should have probably prioritized that even more. In our society today, there's a few others. We faced it, too, as parents. And I think everyone does, and I feel for parents in doing this. Um, but um, good things becoming ultimate things. So now, good things like sports, all of a sudden, with some families, become the ultimate things. And it's four practices a week. It's thousands of dollars on travel teams. It's spending every weekend away from home. It's eating in the car fast food whenever they have to, because the only thing outside of school, it's sports all the time, every day. And every sport team now seems to be saying, you got to put us first place. If you want to really be on this team, if you want your kid to succeed, you better spend all. And it's like, and people are saying, OK, we'll do that. Now, it doesn't have to be sports. It could be anything else. But these days, almost everything is saying, you got to put us first place. you got to put this first place, because it's the only way you're going to get anywhere. Because there's so many other kids, so many other people that could take your place. And that becomes the ultimate. I recall, too, now I'll get towards academia, 
just a little. Vicky understands this as well. In academia, it's publish or perish. In academia, you better focus on your research, research, research all the time, 24-7, if you want to get ahead. I recall when I was at University of Florida, I had a number of older professors who lamented the fact that they saw their younger colleagues now having no social life, having no connections to community, and spending every waking hour they could in their laboratory writing papers because they felt they had to because their entire status, their position and their tenure, everything depended on their performance in academia. And it works for a while. You think, oh, I'll just spend the next five years really focused on all this. I'll get to a point. And, but then it keeps being published or perish. It keeps being researched above everything else. A good thing becomes an ultimate thing. And I am not bashing sports. They are great for kids, but they're not the ultimate thing for kids. I'm not bashing work by any means. It's good to love your job, but not to worship it. And there's nothing wrong with academia and learning, but it doesn't become the ultimate significant point of your life. Inordinate desires, ruling desires, overdrive desires, you know, I can't think of a better description of that than, I don't know how many people have read these, um, but the Lord of the Rings trilogy by J.R.R. Tolkien. You have read them? You've seen the movies. How many have seen the movies, Lord of the Rings? How many have read the books? OK, a few. Well, see, this is the problem with any illustration, right? No, no, it's the fact that there's no universal illustrations you can hardly give anymore because our society is so fragmented. This happens to me in college. I say, OK, we're going to talk about, and I use an analogy from Star Wars, and then I find out half the kids have not watched Star Wars. Or I use Harry Potter, and it's like, I've never read the books and don't, didn't see the movie. I'm going like, what are you guys doing? I don't know. Anyways. I'm still using J.R.R. Tolkien. In the middle of this book, The Lord of the Rings, it's about the power of this one specific ring. It's just a small little thing, and yet it is the overdrive desire of anyone who gets involved with it, so much so that this creature named Gollum has been so warpedly transformed by it, all he can think about it, it's like an addiction. My precious, that's all he can say. And in the trilogy, finally, um, the whole thing happens that this ring gets destroyed in the lava of Mount Doom in the middle of it. And Gollum is the one who grabs for it, falls off the cliff, and dies with it. That's how much it controlled his life. It destroys him in the end. Now, when Tolkien had written these books, there was a lady named Rona Beer. After she read that, thought, this is silly. I don't understand. Well, it is fantasy, so I can understand that. So she said, I don't understand how it is that somebody's power could be so diminished and destroyed simply by a little object that he uh, focused on, a ring of power. And so Tolkien replied that the heart of the, the plot 
of the whole Dark Lord's effort was that he focused so much on something that was not that great in his life. He says, the ring of Sauron is only one of various mythical treatments of placing one's life or power in some external object, which is thus exposed to capture or destruction with disastrous results to oneself. In other words, it's a great example of coveting and what it can do to you. Anything you make ultimate in your life that's only finite and limited, it can ruin you. You can lose your health. You can lose your family. You can lose your friends. You can lose so many things when this one thing is what you're thinking about, focused on, and doing all the time. It's kind of the heart of addiction, isn't it? So how do we get what we really need, then, is our loves to be reordered. We need our loves aligned with what God sees so that all the good things are in the right place, but not the ultimate. So how do we get there? And if you're like me, and I assume you are, you realize time and again how your desires are kind of out of whack with reality. You realize you do not have enough willpower to overcome them just by simply trying. And no matter how much you lecture yourself, how much you encourage yourself, how much you force yourself, how much you reason with yourself, you're not a reasonable creature on your desires. In fact, all those methods actually are ways that world religions try to handle desire, extinguish desire, or modify desires or transform desires through a self-help movement of one form or another, from yogic practices to asceticism to meditation. It's all ways to try to control desires. And the story of the Bible is it doesn't work. But there is another way. Paul says God's not going to bring about change in Romans chapter 7 based on you understanding what's right and wrong. The law does not change you. The law tells you what's wrong. The law shows you like a mirror what's wrong. But the law cannot empower you to do the right. That has to come somewhere else. And the prophets throughout the Old Testament saw how Israel struggled with their desires and how out of whack they were that they worshipped other things. They worshipped their wealth. They worshipped ease and comfort. They worshipped other gods even. And how again and again, no matter how many times the law was brought to them, they could not keep it. And so in the prophets you will find, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Isaiah, in Joel, and others, the hope of another way that God is going to do. Jeremiah calls it a new covenant that God will make because the old covenant didn't work. And Joel talks about the day of the Lord that he will bring, where the Spirit of God will be upon his people. And Isaiah talks about a new way when God comes. And Ezekiel talks about it this way. In Ezekiel chapter 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your unclean 
uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. It's when God cleanses you, when he removes idols from your heart, when he gives you a new heart, when he gives you his spirit. Augustine would say that is when God changes your desires and reorders them. God doesn't change your hearts through force, through fear, through rules. No. Have you ever tried to tell someone, you should love me? <laughs> you better love me. You got to get your act together. I should be, you know, whatever. Doesn't work, does it? It actually probably pushes them away even more. You might be right. They should love you. Doesn't change them. And God could say, well, this is the way it is. You should do these things and be done with it and wait to see somebody, maybe, but nobody can respond to that. Because at the heart of God is not being right. At the heart of God is being the one who loves. His goal is not simply to be honored. His goal is to love, to love you. And in order to love us, God is the one who changed in the most radical way. He is the one who made the greatest change of all by becoming flesh and dwelling among us. God becomes the vulnerable one. He becomes, in fact, this week we celebrate he's the one that is killable. On Palm Sunday, often we uh, celebrate palms, right? That's called Palm Sunday. But I think the focus should be on how Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, a little donkey. Instead of an M1 tank, it's the moped of the first century. And it basically is, he's not on a war horse, he's not in a chariot, he's not in a pompous procession. He's coming in peace on a donkey as one who is exposing himself to all the violence and the hatred and the pains and the agonies of this world and the hopes and dreams of all people of all times and placing them on himself and says, I'm the one that's coming into Jerusalem to give myself to you because I love you completely. He opens himself and faces our sin and death and hell. In fact, Pontius Pilate, as maligned as he is, and rightly so, and as a political animal as he is from what we can tell in the Gospels. He understood one thing quite clearly when Jesus was brought to him, that he wasn't, Jesus was not brought because he was an insurrectionist. He was not brought because he had violated any law that he knew of or was a threat to society in any way. It says in Matthew chapter 27, 18, for Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Another word for coveting, wanting something that you don't have, envy. But Jesus went before Pilate out of his love for the people who actually desired him dead. 
and he would embrace the cross and its humiliation. And that is the definition of love. God is the one who loves those who are so unlovable. And as John's first letter would say, we love only because he first loved us. That's what changes our hearts. When I hear and receive the reality of what Jesus, that he desired nothing more than me, that he put everything, his own life, his own glory, his own uh, honor, and everything that was deserved of him, he lets go of to have me. That the thing that he wanted was his father's will to be done, and his father's, the one thing he wanted was to love this world so much, so much so that he would give his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the God. That's the motivation. It's the gospel that changes your life. It's Jesus and what he has done for you that can, when I hear that, my heart melts. And all of a sudden, well, it can be rearranged. The Bible speaks about this in various ways. In John's gospel, he says it's being born again, being born from above. Paul will talk about becoming a new creation the old passing away, the new has come, or the fact that he has been crucified with Christ. He no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. Or Ezekiel talks about a new heart, a heart of flesh. It all happens when you see who God is in this specific week, that historically, factually, actually, Jesus does it all for you. And he doesn't do it for good people. He doesn't do it for some people. He does it for all people, each one of us. And he doesn't do it to try to get you to do anything, but just to receive it. I like what Robert Farrer Capon so beautifully said about all of this. He says, Jesus came to raise the dead. He did not come to reward the rewardable, improve the improvable, or correct the correctable. He came simply to be the resurrection and life for those who will take their stand on a death he can use instead of a life he cannot. In other words, I'm as good as dead, but I'm going to trust your resurrection, Jesus, and what you've done for me. The gospel is the thing that changes me. The law might nail me and put me in my place, but it's Jesus and Jesus alone that does it. And so as Holy Week begins, I pray it's a week that happens to reorder our loves once again, get them back in line, where our hearts melt and are reformed in various ways, where our loves are rearranged by this week of Christ's passion, and that we celebrate in just such a short time the resurrection that changes everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this day and for um, your word, um, for these Ten Commandments that expose us to our desires, but know, Lord, that you're going to solve even that, that you give us a new heart, a new spirit, that you give us a clean heart, that you renew us, Lord. For we know um, (laughs) if we would say we have no sin, we just deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But we confess to you our sin and you, are so loving and gracious. You forgive us our sins. You are faithful to your promises and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray this week is a time when we can share that joy with others, that we can invite others to celebrate with us the resurrection. 
I pray, Lord God, that you'd work this week in a variety of ways to open up opportunities for each one of us to share the gospel that can change lives, that does change lives, that changed our lives. Lord God, um, we ask that you would uh, bless the offerings that are given this day for your glory and your kingdom. We pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive you and your love as you come to us with the Lord's Supper. We pray, Lord God, that you would use us in this coming week in great ways. You know our desires, Lord. You know how much we struggle with them and how out of control they can be. We pray, Lord, that you have your way with us. That the words of Ezekiel, the words of Jeremiah, the words of Joel, the words, the, all the prophecies come fulfilled in you, Lord Jesus. They are all a yes in you, and we thank you for that. And that changes us for good. So bless us now, Lord. Keep us in your care always. Bring your healing to those who are especially grieving. We ask your healing upon those who are ill. We pray, Lord, that you meet us in our needs. And we, O oh Lord, see you for all you are. All this we pray in your precious name, dear Jesus. Amen.